In this episode of So Dramatic, my guest is artist and educator Lauren Thomas. Lauren and I talk about neo-expressionist painter Jean-Michel Basquiat. We discuss why an artist should be willing to explain their work, how all artists struggle to stay relevant, and my limited memory about my master's thesis. Lauren Thomas, welcome. Thank you. I'm so glad you're here. Here in air quotes, our Zoom here. <laughs> uh, so Lauren, I just want to start the episode with uh, just letting everyone know that this is a podcast about creative people and their baggage. And I invite a new guest each episode and tell them the story of an artist, a musician, a writer. Uh, they don't know who I'm going to talk to them about, but I choose someone I know they will have an interest in and will lead to a great conversation for all the world to hear. So I am really excited about the topic I chose for you. So you and I have been, we've been hanging out a lot during this pandemic, socially distant, garage drinking, we call it Thirsty Thursdays, right? That's correct. And you're an artist and an art teacher. And so you have, you know, great interest in these things. And so I kind of was picking your brain a little bit in our conversations to just sort of see who would be good for you. And then what I realized is actually the first person who I wanted to talk about on my podcast, who I ended up not talking about, that I Googled 2018. So I have the papers I printed out 2018. So three years ago, when I was still thinking about this podcast, this was the first person that I was like, I need to talk about this artist. I have to talk about this artist. And it just never came up. It never matched with the person. You know what I mean? So when I when I kind of realized, you know, I, it's like there's like a spark that I'm like, oh, that's the person. That's who I need to talk to them about. And so that's what happened with you. And I thought, this is so great because this is a topic I've been dying to talk about. Okay, you ready? Yes. Okay. So do you want to open your box? You I would love to. There? Okay, open that up because that'll tell you. So I sent Lauren a package because I thought she might need a visual. Ooh, so our oh my gosh, I'm our, so excited. Our topic is Jean-Michel Basquiat. This is going to be awesome. Yes. Okay. So my sources, because, you know, I'm an English teacher, I've got to get my sources, would be um, there's a uh, New York Times, New York Magazine, Vanity Fair, The Radiant Child documentary, and uh, just to name a few, I also, the book that you have is Jean-Michel Basquiat and the Art of Storytelling. And it is such a cool book. And so I marked pages in there because there's stuff I want to point out to you when we kind of start to talk about it. So I thought it'd be helpful for you to see what, are you familiar with his art at all? Um, Like I know who he is. I don't know anything about his background. Okay. So everything that we talk about today, I will, it'll be new information for me. Good. Oh, I'm so excited. Oh, yeah. I'm excited to learn. Yeah. Okay, good. Let's get started. So in May 2016, a painting by Jean-Michel Basquiat sold for $57.3 million. A year later, another painting of his from 1982, untitled, sold for $110.5 million, making it the sixth most expensive work of art ever purchased at an art auction and setting record wow. for an American artist. But Basquiat, he's not the first painter to sell a canvas for that price. 
but that's a lot of people were just thinking that's just obscene. But basically when that sold, a lot of people said, well, he's now in the same league as Picasso. And when they say league, is it the same league? So does that mean he's as great an artist as Picasso or he's as expensive? So that's kind of what I wanted to talk with you about, right? So the idea of you have this art and you and I have talked about Picasso and I know he's one of your favorites, right? Yes. And so when I saw that too, I was like, that was a sign too that I'm like, I need to talk to Lauren about this because a lot of people would kind of dismiss Picasso as well and say, what is this? You know, what is this stuff? What is this, you know, hokey stuff? So, so Jean-Michel Basquiat, let's talk about who he was. So he was a neo-expressionist painter in the 1980s. He's best known for his primitive style and his collaboration with pop artist Andy Warhol. He was born in Brooklyn, New York on December 22nd, 1960 with a Haitian-American father and a Puerto Rican mother. And so he had a really diverse cultural heritage, and that was a big source of his inspiration. So his mother, Matilda, she was a Brooklynite of Puerto Rican descent. And in some accounts, she's like this really loving and nurturing figure. She would take him to the Museum of Modern Art to see Picasso's Guernica. Side note, my master's thesis was on Guernica. Did I ever tell you that? Yeah. No, never. It was, you know, 20 years ago, so I don't remember much. So what did you write about? I don't remember. (laughs) You're telling me you don't don't remember what your thesis statement was? I think about that now. It's like, oh, I mean, it was what, 100 pages? You know what I mean? I, I know it had to do with like art, an art lesson and kind of, um, interpretation and things like that but i i couldn't tell you (laughs) i'm sure it was amazing so but that piece of that guernica is actually the first his the first piece of art that he really remembers that seemed to inspire him that kind of had an impact on him and i i've seen i see some of that in some of like his drawings especially like some of the animals that he draws it sort of has that guernica kind of feel to it uh, from Picasso. They would go to see theater, they'd go to West Side Story, and then she also gave him a copy of Grey's Anatomy, and that was a, all of these things are kind of touchstones for his work and things that he drew from. But in other accounts, she's really kind of erratic, accused of like beating him because his underwear was on backwards, threatening to kill her entire family by, you know, pull, turning a car into traffic. So she really struggled with mental illness for a long time, and he said she had a worry line on her forehead because she worried so much. And he called her his sorceress, but she was in and out of mental hospitals for most of his life. And really probably after his the age of when he was about 13, spent a lot of, more of her time in mental hospitals. He said she went crazy as a result of a bad marriage, but he spoke really lovingly of her. His, so were his, were his, parents, were his parents married? Were they married? Were they like together all the time? So they got, they were married and then they were separated around the time, I think around the time he was 11, they got separated and then they never actually divorced, but they were never together. So his dad was the Haitian immigrant and he really was an upwardly mobile middle class that he's not, he was not raised in poverty. He was not destitute by any means. And his dad was a, a professional and he wanted to instill those middle class values. You know, he's an immigrant coming into this country. He wanted his kids to have those middle class values and Basquiat wanted none of it like he was not interested and they said that one time his dad beat him so bad that he had to have a cane to walk in school the next day because it was just so so there was a lot of physical abuse his dad denies all of this of course another time he tells it he was beaten so bad the police had to come to the house so 
while he speaks lovingly of his mother, he's not not so lovingly of his father, and we'll see more of that later on. So was, was he an only child? No. So he had uh, there was a I think a brother died before he was born, and then he had two sisters who were younger than he was. So he was 60, 1960. I think the sisters were like 64, 67. So they were younger than he was. So there were ended up being three total. When he was at like age six or eight, it accounts differ, but he was playing in the street, got hit by a car, and he had to go have a splenectomy. So he was in the hospital while he was there. That's when his mom gave him the copy of Grey's Anatomy, which is huge influence on his work. Huge, huge influence. All these, you know, that the Grey's Anatomy is, it's not the TV show. <laughs> it's... <laughs> So he and he even had a band that he called Gray after Gray's Anatomy later on, but it's so it's all these um, he used a lot of in his work motifs of like feet and the human body, you know images of the, and then the inside of the human body. So you see a lot of that in in his artwork. So parents separated, but again they never officially divorced. His father, you know, always insisted that his family was this elite family in Haiti, and he you know worked hard and got this degree, and he worked for a company for a, he was an accountant for Macmillan Publishing Company. But he was pretty much an absentee father. At one point, I think he left for a few years, took the sisters, I think, to Puerto Rico. And so he was, you know, the mom was taking care of him then. So he, he was just kind of, you know, not not around very much. But basically, you know, Basquiat was sort of a self-taught artist as a young boy. He started drawing really young on sheets of paper that his dad would bring home from work. And his mom really encouraged it. She really encouraged any art, his artistic talent. And he did go to a, a pretty nice private art school for grammar school and you know pretty privileged by the time he was 11 he was trilingual french english and spanish so having that those parents oh my god made a huge difference so 11 he could speak three languages fluently they talked about him just like hiding in the crawl space at the at his father's home and drawing beneath the staircase like hiding in the little cubby hole and like drawing on the walls and drawing pictures and stuff he ran away at least twice and then he ran away for good and left school when he was 17. So his father really disapproved. His mother, again, not maybe fully aware at this point of what's happening, kind of, a, you know, focused on herself, which makes sense. But he just did not want to be home. He did not want to be with his dad. He did not want to go to school. He didn't want to be there. And so he basically was living on the streets. He was sleeping on park benches. Or he was kind of staying in, you know, these crazy little hotel motels or um, friends' couches, just kind of surfing. So to make ends meet, he would sell sweatshirts and postcards with his artwork on the streets of native New York City. Andy Warhol even talks about that he would buy a few of these, you know, remembers buying them when he was on the street. He began his life as an artist, spray painting on the walls and in around Soho under a pseudonym called Samo, S-A-M-O, Samo. And it's short for the same old shit. So he would tag things Samo. Okay, so did, so Andy Warhol, like, was he considered one of the first people to almost like, quote unquote, discover him? Like, did he... I mean, he, did he know him when he was 17 or meet him that young? So he would have met him officially. It's not till 82. So that would have been like mm, 77. So when he was about, I think it was around maybe 82, I think when he and Andy really connected. And then we'll talk about what they did together and their thing. But yeah, there was kind of like at this time in New York, there's, they talk about this group of like three, about 300 people who were kind of like this core group. New York was a rough place, right? And there were these people who were drawn to New York who were not these criminals, who were not, who were sort of these artistic types, who all kind of bonded together. And they'd go to Max's Kansas City, they'd go to CBGB, and they would hang out at these clubs, but they were sort of this kind of this group who a lot of them were struggling and 
poor artist. But then you'd have Andy Warhol and David Bowie and you'd have Madonna and you'd have, you know, so you'd have all the, but it was like the kind of this core group of these 300 people. And so he, he would, they all sort of knew and were aware of each other, so to speak. So when he starts doing the same, oh, he, it's 17, he, you know, it's everywhere. They see it all over. And he's interviewed by the Village Voice when he's 17. And he said, um, Samo was designed as a tool for mocking bogusness. And he was so happy at how the Soho types had fallen for it. He said, they're doing exactly what we thought they'd do. He told the reporter, we tried to make it sound profound, and they think it actually is. The city is crawling with uptight middle-class pseudos trying to look like the money they don't have. Status symbols. It cracks me up. It's like they're walking around with price tags stapled to their heads. People should live more spiritually, man, but we can't stand on the sidewalk all day screaming at people to clean up their acts, so we write it on the walls. So what what he was saying was this idea that th- this means nothing, but you want to you want to make it mean something because somehow that gives you makes you look like you you're cool or you you have this depth of understanding, and he's like it doesn't mean anything. It's the same old shit, but people were like you know talking about it and drawn to it. So as soon as it got all the attention, then he kind of stopped doing it. But you see interviews with people where they'll go, oh, Sam-O. And he's like, no, it's Sam-O. Sam-O shit. You know? And still I don't get it. Yeah, no. you still don't get it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It, oh, and just the interviews too, Lauren. We'll get a chance to talk about that. Just how he comes across. It's very, again, this is why I was so drawn to him. So 79, he kind of has his first stable home. It's like his first apartment with a key. <laughs> he never, he'd never had a key to a place before. And he just couldn't believe it so he it was like this six floor walk up and he basically start to started to draw and write on anything he could possibly get so if he'd find a door in the garbage he'd bring that up to the apartment and paint on it and draw on it and write on it if he found a crate he'd bring it up if he found an old tv so whatever he had he would just grab and bring it up you know i mentioned about those this whole there's this whole group of these young people who are kind of gravitating to this area of new york because it's sort of a it's sort of a free for all and they're allowed to kind of be themselves whereas when he was with this family that wasn't really allowed but even though these streets are kind of dangerous these people then kind of cling to each other because they're like yeah this is kind of scary this is kind of overwhelming but we can sort of be together through it what else did he draw on windows if he found old windows and what what was he drawing so he was drawing like a car accident or an ambulance or the skyline and he would sometimes take like little scraps of paper or fabric and like stick it to the to the the whatever his canvas was and then paint over it you know and stick it and it was sort of this sort of applying different layers to the canvases and then he would write words but he would cross it has a very collage quality to it yeah for sure yeah, there's a lot, definitely has a collage feeling. And so he would write a word and then he would cross it out because he felt, he felt when you crossed out a word, you called attention to it because people would look and go, what did he cross out? Love really? that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Isn't that an interesting, because it's true, right? Totally. I've like, I've never thought of that before, but it's totally true. Like if you do, if you were to cross out a word or cover up part of it, everybody wants to know what's behind it, what's underneath mm-hmm. it, what's, you know, what was there, what did you change, why did you change it? Yeah, yeah for sure. Oh, so symbols. So he he would do like the copyright symbol, sort of ironically, he would paint that a lot. And he that you'd see that a lot with Samo's work when he was um, tagging things. Once he started working indoors, though, his symbols kind of took on a, like a different irony. So it seems a little bit darker, maybe more fragile. And then he was sort of like, you know, when it was out in public, when it was on a building, it's sort of there for public consumption. 
But when now when I'm creating something that's in my apartment, what am I making this for? Is this mine now? Or should I use my own name? Or is this still same-o? Like, what am I doing? Is, and is this going to make me money? So that's sort of where he's at, where imagine like the first time you have a place where you could actually create and sort of trying to figure that out. Uh, so at this time where he is kind of like trying to figure all of this out, what is he doing? I mean, is he still just doing like the postcards and the stuff in the street yeah. in order to make money to yeah. pay for the apartment mm-hmm. and to live? Yeah. Okay. So he's selling a decent amount then. Or maybe not. Okay. You know, I think there was a lot of support. I think a lot of people kind of helped each other out. And I'm sure the apartment, he was living with some woman, she may have been paying for all of it. Who knows? You know, he wasn't, didn't have much. And, you know, we're not talking, we're talking, you know, super, super cheap, like gross, gross place to live. It's not going to be crazy expensive, but at least he had shelter. He was not on the streets anymore. He also started, I mentioned the band Gray that he, that he was in. He played in this band. A guy said, oh, we should start a band. He's like, okay. And he's like, oh, you should play the clarinet. He doesn't know how to play the clarinet. And the guy's like, I'll play the drums. The guy doesn't know how to play the drums. So they're like, okay. So the fact that he couldn't do it, that he didn't have the ability or the skill didn't really matter. But a lot of people said that too about his art, that he really didn't have the ability or the skill, but he had the passion. They would play at CBGB. They'd play at Max's Kansas City. But again, he'd play the clarinet. The guy would play the drums and neither of them could play an instrument. And people were like, oh, it was really cool. You know, kind of that avant-garde sort of wiggy whacked you know it would have driven me crazy that really is a quality of an artist though the willingness to um fear i feel like that's one of those things you got to have to like make it is the willingness willingness to try something even if you're unsure if you're whether or not you're going to be successful at it or you're going to be able to like take those chances you know if you just go for it sometimes you just have to go for it oh absolutely and that that to me is what has what led to this podcast is that I'm fascinated by people who are like, I don't know how I'm going to pay the rent. I don't, I don't know how I'm going to, you know, I don't, I'm not worried about my health insurance or, you know, 401k, but I have to make this painting or I have to write this book or I have to make this song. And that, because I'm such a practical person, don't have that kind of confidence that they are driven that way. Yes, I totally agree. I feel the same way as you. I need that stability. And I'm not that good. So <laughs> that's the other part. Maybe if I were better, I'd have a little bit more confidence. But yeah, so he, you know, he's in this band. And so his paintings now at this point start to kind of move towards more conventional painting. So he transitioned from kind of these sort of streetscapes to human figures. And these are kind of shown frontally. There's little or no depth of field. So it's kind of like one dimensional. And you'd see the nerves and the organs are exposed almost in an anatomy textbook. These are very, you know, crude drawings. They're not realistic looking, you know, just kind of how would you describe that to someone listening? How would you get it to describe his style? Primal, elementary. But yet I would agree with very flat, no depth of field. Um, Yeah, those... That would definitely be okay. some of the terms. Okay, use. good, because you're the you're the art teacher, so you'd have a better handle on that than I would. But I like that you said primal because we're going to come back to that. Okay. So June 1980, he exhibited his work for the first time. He painted this mural. There's a Times Square show, and they basically said, hey, whoever wants to you know, put up their artwork, come to this show. And so you could walk in and go, hey, I'm an artist. And they'd go, okay. And they'd like stick your painting up, you know? So it was one of those kinds of things. Sort of, they'd have performance art, graffiti, film, kind of a carnival atmosphere. But his work and what he contributed to that was really singled out. 
And following that show, he was included in this New York New Wave show that this sort in this nonprofit art space that's like in Long Island. So there are more of 100 artists there. So that the Times Square show kind of led to this next show. And so at this show, there's 100 artists, but only one was given a prominent space for paintings. And so he was. He showed more than 20 of his works on the wall in the final room of the show. And so at this point, this is when he's noticed by this art dealer. And her name is Anina Nose. And she's like the first thing I have marked in the book to show you like his with her right at the beginning. She she sees him at she sees his stuff and she's like he had a quality that you don't find on the walls of the street, a quality of poetry and a universal message of the sign. It was a bit immature but very beautiful. So she had a really deep background in the art world and her connection was to his work was instantaneous and serious. She was like I have to represent you. Like she saw it and she was drawn to it. But there was a hitch. The 20 paintings he had he didn't have anything else. So she's like, let me see what, what you're doing. He's like, well, I don't I don't have anything. She's like, what are you talking? You don't have inventory? He's like, no. And she's like, okay. So he's like, I don't really. And he's in this tiny cramped apartment. You know, it's like he's in the, like a, a loft. So she's yeah. like, okay, we need to fix that. So she then put him in, in her gallery. There was sort of a basement. Now we say basement. It, ha- it was one of those basements where... It has sort of the the lights kind of um, skylights almost at the base, you know, so light would come in. So it was a very big open space because it did have sort of skylights that felt that filtered light in there. So she put him to work and she said, you got to start producing something, you know, because you're going to be you're going to go places. And she just supplied all this, all he needed, all his, you know, whatever canvases, whatever he needed. He would show up early in the morning with croissants and he'd apologize if he was late. And she's like this isn't a job. Like you don't have to show up here at eight. Like he'd be like eight thirty. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm late. She's like, no, this is your space. Like to work. It's not a nine to five job. Like that's not how it works. And then she said he'd put on a bolero. He would blast the the music from bolero, which is this kind of iconic music. And he'd have the TV playing. He'd have books kind of spread all out. So he'd be going back and forth between the TV, have the music playing, have a book open, look at one book, look at another book, and just kind of move around the room and just start, you know, painting. And she'd like be banging with her umbrella, like, shut up, turn that music down. But he was just all this multitasking and just almost like chaos while he's creating. And this is when his work really started to mature, like really, really quickly. This work feels like chaos. Yeah. Doesn't yeah, there is a chaotic feeling to that. Felt. And I feel like that's where that that whole feeling of that collage that collage quality comes through in that the way you describe his the way in which he works. You know what I mean? If he's yeah. kind of coming back and forth to it and doing different mm-hmm. things all at one time, that that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely showing that through his yeah. work. You know, when I look at his pieces, I they're not calming to me. They're they're very unsettling. As much as I don't think there's a lot of I don't know what's the word. I don't know if substance is the word, but there, there's it makes you think in a way that you don't expect that you're going to be thinking about because you're like this is very simple, and then when you start to look at it, you're like it's but it's not it's not very simple because there's a lot of things happening like we were saying it's almost collage like you're trying to take in every little part of it and what's happening. And you're trying to figure out some of the things some of the things he's putting together seem so disconnected, and you're trying to take the time to figure out you know. What is he trying to say and why are all of some of what yeah. seem to be random things put together? Okay. All right. And that we're going to talk about it because they someone asks him that. And I think it's really interesting, his answer. 
because it makes sense to me when I heard his answer about wh why that is. Okay, Iron Eve Negro Policeman, he he paints this and he thought it was odd that a black man would be a policeman because, at the, you know, at the time, which I don't know, things are, you know, so different now. Policemen and bl black people had an issue. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but, you know, they're oh, targeted. Never. Oh, my yeah. gosh. I know. Seriously? Yeah. So he thought it was odd wow. that a black person would be a policeman. So he found that ironic. So that was kind of one of his first paintings that was sort of had a, like a kind of a, another message, right? A, a deeper message here. He, and then he would also paint some black men that he felt were like... It, at the same time, virtuosos and martyrs. So like Dizzy Gillespie or Muhammad Ali or Hank Aaron or Charlie Parker. So all these black musicians and athletes and Sugar Ray Robinson, they all really featured prominently in this art. And he favored the symbol, the crown. And that's often his way of celebrating black people and their majestic royalty or deeming them as, as saints almost. So these people, these people who were like the, the trailblazers and what they did, like Hank Aaron and Muhammad Ali and what they were able to accomplish he was really inspired by their accomplishments, and he believed that he was continuing the work of this noble lineage. So he, again, would often kind of portray, portray himself in his self-portraits as wearing the crown as well. But what he really believed was that up until that point, there was no realistic portrayal of Black people in art. And then he said, and in modern art, there was just not enough of Black people being portrayed. And he said, I'm glad that I get to do that, that I can use Black people as my protagonist in all my paintings. I thought that was kind of a so cool to him, So to him, he feels as though he's creating a realistic depiction? So realistic. Let's say, let's. what does that mean? So when you think about classic paintings of Black people, how, where do you see them at? You'll see them portrayed as a slave. You'll see them portrayed as a servant. You'll see that. Where do you see pictures, you know, up until a certain point where black people were the, the center, where they were heroes, where they were, you know, you don't, you didn't really see that represented. And so that's, I think, what he meant about realistic, you know, so not looking realistically, but who they really are as people as more than this one or two dimension right? They're not, they're not just slaves. They're not just servants. They're not, you know, these side characters. Where are we seeing Black people as the heroes, as the, as the protagonist? I love the concept and the idea, but I, 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 without hearing that, I would never take that away from the work. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, if you didn't know that background, I feel like looking at it, you, as, I mean, at least me personally, right? I'm not looking and thinking, that that's what's being communicated mm -hmm. visually. I agree. So they were talking about his work and his paintings. So he would sometimes have three canvases going at once and he'd be going from one to the next, to the other, to the other. And they said sometimes he could do two or three a day. You'd see him, he'd paint like in a slipper, sometimes in his Armani suit, which is kind of the, the image that we were most familiar with. And then every once in a while, like one of Nosei's assistants would like walk him over to cash station and give him some money to get food or whatever. His rise coincided with this emergence of this new young art movement. It's this neo-expressionism. And that's this wave of new, young, experimental artists who had returned to portraying the human body and other recognizable objects in reaction to the remote, introverted, highly intellectualized abstract art production of the 70s. So definition is a revival of expressionism and art characterized by intense colors, dramatic, usually figural forms, and emotive subject matters. We kind of go back to Rothko. Mm -hmm. and I talked about Rothko in an earlier episode. And he, you know, he was reacting to the, the the guard before him and the the whoever was, you know, the best artist before that. He's like, hey, make way for the new people. And then when the new people come up for him, he's like, wait a second, what is this neo-expressionism crap, right? Didn't get it. Didn't, didn't, 
it didn't make sense to him. But that, you know, that was the new era. That was the era of Andy Warhol and pop art as well. So in um, October 1981, Nose, she had him in a group gallery. She gave him, he had six paintings, the entire back room of her gallery, and all his work sold. And so she made him another proposal. And she said, I'm going to give you a loft to live in and a studio to paint in and assistance to work for you and supplies. And then I'll have collectors set up for you. So it's the idea that I'll get you all set up. I'll give you whatever you need. And at the end, I'm going to make sure that your work sells and I'm going to take care of all of this. So it seems like they say it seems like he had arrived, but he didn't really know where. You know, this is, think how fast this is happening. This is just, he's, you know, this is 81. He's 21 years old. So I was trying to figure out what it was about him that was drawing me. Okay. So it was like, there's like this innocence and fragility to him, but also like this insistence and confidence as well. Right. So you you could see how he'd be swallowed up by this whole thing. You could see how this no say who comes in is like, oh, I've got you. Like we're going to you know, kind of get steamrolled and caught up in the whole mechanism of it. Everyone wants his work. We, he needs to do more and more and more. Okay, now we're done. And we're just going to kind of use you up. And, and, and I feel like the system kind of does that, right? Oh, you're popular. Okay, so we're going to make sure that we get as much out of you as we possibly can, whether or not this is right for you or not. And so that I see that. That's me just going off on a tangent because I always see that with artists, right? Like musicians, so they're like, oh, we we got you got to do a hundred shows. You got to do. It's like, why? Why does Basquiat have to do you know two paintings a day? Like, wh- what? Who's saying that? Yeah, it's kind of the concept. Like, you hit it, you got to strike while the iron's hot. So you really got to produce a lot, knowing that those people are coming up behind you. Right. You know what I mean? It's it's a very mm. I don't know capitalistic kind of thing. I feel like yeah, but it's like how much how different would it be if we just kind of let the process happen? and didn't force it. At a certain point, running your artists like this, they're going to get burned out and you're going to need someone else after them. But maybe if that we didn't do that, or, or is the public finicky? I don't know. I don't know what, what the real answer is, but I always just, I always wonder about that. Like he's got to be producing, you know, or she's got to be writing a song or it's like, why? Like, what is the rush? But yeah, you're, you're right. There's, there's going to be someone else coming up behind them. So, or, you know, and they get that fame and recognition and then they they want to they want to keep it so they're so they feel like they have to keep it going you know kind of keep that high rolling yeah so like you have to keep yeah making, when you're creating, number one there's only one to way stay to stay relevant go. yeah you're right stay relevant so again this interview i saw I, I watched a bunch of interviews but i was trying to get a sense of him and you know as i was working through this and writing the script i kept kind of coming back to these videos and watching these interviews and I'm like i couldn't just put my finger on it someone described him as as these interviews as there's a mixture of shyness and resentment and i thought yeah he's he's quiet but he's ambitious and he's competitive and don't let that you know it's like the still waters run deep right don't let that fool you but absolutely there is this resentment there that why am I even having to talk to you? So the, he did a, this documentary with his friend. It's called The Radiant Child, and it's really good. And she asked him this question. This is what I, this is when we talk about his art. And this, I think this will kind of help make sense of it. And she says, do you ever comply with people's requests to describe or explain your work? So this is his, a good friend of his asked him this in this interview. And he goes, I never know how to describe it. He goes, it's like asking Miles Davis, how does your horn sound? And I was like, Mm. okay, right? How would you describe, like, how would you say, how does your horn? It's like, can't you hear it, right? And if you can't hear it, like, and then he said, or asking him, why did you play this note here? Would you ask, would you ask a musician that? And that's sort of like what he's saying is like, 
I don't know, like, because it, because I felt like it should go there, right? So if you're doing, playing a song and you're improvising and you play that note, because that's what you felt was right at the time, the same thing you're painting. I put that there because that's what I felt was right at the time. I don't know. I feel like they're not unreasonable questions. I feel, because uh, you do, sometimes the things I feel like, like sometimes the things you do as an artist, they are intuitive. And sometimes you just do them because you just, I don't know, you're just drawn to do them. But then, I mean, he's definitely making a lot of conscious decisions and choices. Mm-hmm. And he just doesn't want, I, I feel like he just doesn't want to have to explain himself to anyone. Yes. And that's why, that's why that description of shyness and resentment, I thought was really interesting. Because that's kind of a resentful answer right? Why do I have to explain myself? And it makes sense. His answer makes sense. But there's also that he's angry about the fact or resents the fact that he's got to explain himself, right? Over and over and over and over again to people. So I don't know. I thought that was kind of an interesting take, but I definitely thought that there's a shyness there. And it's almost like, it's almost like he won't even make eye contact, but then he'll say something and you're like, oh, he, no, he's with it. And he's, He's definitely on to this person who's asking him questions. So he's in this loft now. He's on Crosby yeah, especially Street. Especially since like the work he's creating, the question is the work that he's creating isn't like, it's not like totally, it's not straightforward, you know, and it's, it is very, you know, haphazard and there's stuff all over the place. And there is, you know, people are trying to make sense of it, you know, of, of what's going on and, you know, try to get to the root of what he was trying to say. Okay. Well, I think that's why a lot of his work was called Untitled. A lot of his work is Untitled. If you kind of flip through that book, you'll see Untitled, Untitled. And I think to Picasso, what if you ask Picasso to explain his work, right? I mean, the lion that he gave to Chicago, he, that's Untitled. He won't tell, he wouldn't tell anybody what that was. Why not? Why can't you just tell us? Is it a monkey? Is it a baboon? Is it a lion? Is it a, what is it? See, but not- I feel like I feel like I don't struggle with that one so much because I feel like it still is a little bit more straightforward. It's simplified. There's not like the the layering and the like malt, the strange things put together uh, here where he's working in many layers and you're wondering, you know, why is you know that brain drawn? Um, I I feel like because so much there's so much more going on in the all of the random things he's kind of put together and you're wondering what's the relationship between a particular portrait and then the drawing of the brain and then all of this list of words that he's written and you know you're trying to put all these like puzzle pieces together and why did he cross off that word you know what i mean this isn't straightforward whereas the picasso one is just so much more simplified i wonder too Part of it is we have to think about his age. He's 20, 21. He's not used to having to talk about this. He doesn't have that years of experience in how to present his work and how to talk about his work. And it's this fame is coming so fast that now all of a sudden you're being interviewed by people day after day after day after day. You're answering the same question over and over again. You could see where you'd be like, I'm, I'm, this is not what, I, what I'm doing. I want to be an artist. And I didn't think about this side of it that I'd have to be answering these questions over and over and over and over and over again for people who don't get it. And I don't think, I think too, that that's who would imagine, you would never imagine that because to think that you'd think that, oh, I'm going to be successful. I need to prepare myself for how I'm going to deal with this. That that's not really something that you do unless you're, you know, crazy confident. Yeah, that make that does make total sense. 
I feel like in each one of your episodes, that same that same point comes up because like in in previous season, that's like a reoccurring theme. Like, you know, we question the decisions of the artist and why did they do those things? And it always comes back to, they get, and the artist gets frustrated with being questioned and we, and it comes back to um, their kind of age and inexperience and immaturity. Yeah. So that and when you bring that point up, it definitely yeah. makes sense. But I, I get what you're saying that there, these are calculated decisions. These are calculated moves. These people who he's portraying, the crown that he's putting on, these symbols, they mean something. He's not just dumping a bucket on a, on a thing and walking away. These are choices he's making. So there is a reason behind that. There is a reason for putting that. So it's a valid question to say, why did you put that there? Why did you portray this person like this? Why did you put a crown on this person? Those are valid questions because those are choices that he purposely made to do that. Why did you cross out that word? So I think when you kind of see that, like I said, I do feel like it has to do with his age, inexperience, and, you know, kind of this shooting to the top sort of thing. So we'll see what happens. They always they always implode, don't they? Oh, God bless them. I think also his, like, his idea of wanting to portray successful Black people would be a message he would want people to understand. You know what I mean? That a, a message, like he was trying to say like, hey, we, like we are doing things like this and you know, I want people to view this. So why wouldn't you want to share like, hey, this is what I want to tell the world. This is my message. Take it in. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. In some ways I feel like, I mean, he's behind his time with that concept too, right? or before his time. Yeah, yes. Yes. But I feel like now that that's what's happening now in the world, you know? Yeah. Well, like he was saying, like, there's not enough representation. Black people are not represented in art in a realistic way. And, you know, what, what, that they're, that they're just regular people, that they're normal people, but also they can be role models and heroes. And why are we not seeing that? Why is that not being portrayed? Yeah. It's, you know, the race is definitely going to come up in his story for sure. So this, this loft that he's in now that the dealer uh no say she gets in this loft and so people would come up and they'd hit the buzzer or they'd call from up the street and they would collectors would come in and they'd they'd ask like i wonder if that's gonna match our room and he'd be like get out (laughs) very similar to rothko rothko would like refuse to sell paintings to people if they were like how is this gonna go in my with my couch so he'd have people coming in and then so if they if they were pissed him off, then he would like dump food out the window on their heads as they were leaving. Like he was pretty, you know, immature. So he's got this loft. Now he's got these graffiti kids would come, groupies, celebrities, drug buddies. People would just be in like day and night and day and night, in and out, in and out. And one of his assistants was like, I don't know how he gets anything done, but he'd be painting with all this kind of chaos around him. And it was just the place was just strewn with like garbage and art and toys and books and magazines. And so they basically, people, whoever were there at that time said that two things were always true. The TV was always on and the fridge was always filled with gourmet sundries like chocolates and pastries and caviar that was slowly going bad. So he would just be buying these crazy expensive, you know, food to have and, and just you know, it was just constant noise, constant chaos. His girlfriend at the time, Suzanne, remembers that they would cover the windows with black paper and they would just kind of like let their internal clocks go and just hang out and they would do drugs and cocaine. And he st- that's when he started freebasing. So along with the drugs and now his kind of new fame, 
and these hangers on and he started to kind of get paranoid and now he had all this money and didn't really know what to do with it so he literally would like shove it around his apartment like he would shove it in a book or under the carpet or just leave it in piles he didn't have a bank account the girlfriend said at the time she opened a book and there were a thousand dollars fell out of the book like he was just shoving it all right you know when you go from having nothing to then having all of this money like he didn't know despite the fact this dad was an accountant he didn't know what to do with it you know you really kind of start to see how overwhelming this is and how he's just he's in over his head he would just spend it or waste it or buy stuff that he didn't need like he bought all these electronics because he thought oh that's what i should be doing and then she said he just sat down in the middle of them all and just cried he's like i don't want this what am i doing interesting so uh, march 1982 all the work that he had made in his studio he has a, a new exhibit and so it's like a new face so he starts replacing kind of the crude his crude surfaces that had the torn bits of paper was something a little bit more calculated, so a little more better techniques of collaging. He used color and surface and line to more to be more expressionistic, a little more confidence. And again, now he's making paintings for the market, and he's making a lot of them quickly and under pressure. And his first solo show in the United States as Basquiat sold out in one night. He made two hundred thousand dollars in one night. And so after that, he goes to Los Angeles. He has an opening there. He spent a lot of time in Los Angeles. And then there was a gallery owner in Switzerland, Biscoff Berger, who he became good friends with. And he would go and visit him and stay with him. And he did a lot of work in Switzerland and in Italy as well. So shortly after this triumph, he sells all those paintings. He goes to Italy and he's in this airplane hangar on the outskirts of town. They put him in there and they give him a 25 by 15 foot canvas. And they said, okay, paint something and they give him like a couple days to do it and he's like they set me up so i'd have to make eight paintings in a week and he goes it was a big factory warehouse it was like a sick factory so two months later after that he comes back and he go, goes into noise's basement and destroys his canvases just rips them up uses a box cutter slashes them down and dumps paint on them because he's just starting to feel like i'm just a commodity this is he's also yeah. famous at this time for dating someone i don't know if you've heard her name's madonna all right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Before she was married. I did not know that. Yeah. So they were dating. They spent a couple months oh. in Italy. So before she was real famous, and she said that she broke up with him because he wouldn't stop doing heroin. And she says he was amazing. He was deeply talented. She said I loved him, but it was it was too much. And she said when I broke up with him, he made me give back the paintings that he had given me, and then he painted over them in black. Whoa. Mm -hmm. That's harsh. Right. This is when he meets Warhol. He's introduced this Biscuit Burger, takes him to Andy's place, and Andy takes a Polaroid of them together, of um, Jean-Michel and Andy Warhol. Jean-Michel grabs the Polaroid, jumps in a cab, and comes back two hours later with a painting. It's still wet of him and Andy from the, the Polaroid. And Andy's like, <laughs> he's faster than I am. And he was like really impressed by that. He can't even believe that he's just brought this back so i think i i just thought that was kind of a cool sort of marking their the the start of their their more intense relationship i love the way he's done andy warhol in yeah. this like yeah. that is like he definitely captured i mean he did capture himself a little bit but i the way that his choices and the way he did warhol that, that i really like yeah i like that too and that's i wanted you to see that for sure so he became famous like at this time when artists are supposed to be 
sort of commercial innocence, that idea fell apart for good. And there was that idea of the art star, right? So that kind of came in vogue. And so he kind of has this issue with, are you interested in me? Or are you interested in my art? What is it? So at the time, his art then kind of, he starts to add more symbols. So dollar signs, coins, Federal Reserve notes, Japanese yen, Afro-Cuban ideograms, logos, cars, airplanes, feathers, feet, skull. All this stuff starts to kind of show up more in his work. And again, he would grab anything he, he saw that might serve as raw material. And again, he's looking at books, he's watching TV, he's listening to music. So all this stuff is kind of flowing through him. People are around him. He's, you know painting all this time. And sometimes he'd even layer canvases with like color photocopies and paint over them. And he even started using that silk screening trick that Warhol used for his and to repeat. So if there was a certain image that he wanted it from his own paintings, he would make a silk screen of it and then put it into other paintings as well. So it would be the exact same copy. So he would transfer it between canvases. In 85, the New York Times magazine ran this cover story on Basquiat called New Art, New Money. And it was sort of odd and, and suspicious as well. They had these references to this hot, possibly gullible market in contemporary art. His work was said to be selling at a brisk pace, so brisk some observers joked that his paint was barely dry. And Basquiat himself was quoted as worrying that he had become a gallery mascot. Whatever else was true, this was not the starving artist the public was accustomed to seeing. People were sort of like, people are paying how much for your work? Okay. And he was sort of like, yeah, I know. Like, well, I don't really get it, you know. But there was this skepticism that the, this is what this is what you're painting and people are paying that. Do you think that's true with a lot of modern art that people oh, kind of question? Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree. I think that that, that many people question that about modern art. And why do you, like, can you think of examples or anything that you'd say people were like, what, this is, this is a joke? Well, your example, you've already, uh, Rothko, you know, that was, that's, you know, those kinds of things, all the color field painting where there are these just vast expanses of plain color. And I think anytime there's things that people don't understand, then they're going to question what it's all about. And then when people don't want to explain what it's all about or talk about it, I think that just, you know, makes it even worse. At a certain level, can they be right? I mean, are we allowed to say, no, I'm sorry, that's crap. Or I'm sorry that that's ridiculous, that that's, you're trying to tell me this is something that it's not, that it's, you're trying to give this more value than it really has. Can we say that? Or is that taboo? I, I feel like we can say that. I mean, as as viewers, I mean, you get you get to pick, and 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 as somebody that's gonna maybe buy it to put it in your house, you can decide. You can be the judge of, do you want to pay for that? Do you not want to pay for it? And do you admire it and respect it? Like we've talked about in the past before, sometimes you see some things, you learn more about it, you admire it, and you respect it, but it's not something that you would ever buy or want to hang in your house. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some, at some point, there are people, though, who are afraid to say that, who are afraid to say, it's almost like, oh, you don't get it. So they'd rather just be like, oh, it's amazing. Oh, it's, you know, these posers, right? And that's kind of what he felt a lot of was these people who were questioning him. I think that's part of it, too, that he was like, you don't get it. So it's not just, I shouldn't have to explain myself because we, we agree that you probably should, but it's that you don't get this and this isn't, this isn't for you maybe, right? This art isn't for you. Yeah, but sometimes I think that that's unfair because I feel like to it with an open mind, but not quite have an understanding, but a willingness to maybe, an art, that gives, I mean, the artist, the painter, the writer, the musician, an opportunity to 
oh, you know, open someone's eyes to something that they didn't understand. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I feel like by your unwillingness to explain your choices or try to inform or share like your point of view, then you're, you're losing your chance and your opportunity to impact those people and share your message. Well, that kind of brings up another idea and that has to do with artists. Once you, once you put something out into the world, do you get to choose how people see it or is it up to those people? So if you put a poem out there and you're like, oh gosh, this reminds me of when my dog died. And the person's like, that's not about a dog. That's about my grandmother. You can't imagine that that's, you can't say it's about this when it's not. Different artists respond in different ways. I've, I had one we met a writer when I was in college and people weren't like performing his work. And he's like, that's not what I meant. So when people performed it, he was mad. He thought the author was there. And he's like, I didn't mean that. And they're like, well, that's how we interpret it. And he's like, no, that's not what I meant. And I thought that's really interesting because we kind of brought up the idea that once you put your art in the world, you know, some artists feel like, hey, once it's out there, it's whatever you want. And some feel like, no, I have a very specific purpose for that. And it can't be anything other than that. And some are kind of both. That always is interesting to me. Like, when do you have to give up your right to that when you make it for public consumption? I think that that some people are going to interpret things in their own way and take things away that um, as the creator, you do have an opportunity, if you choose to, to control the message, if you want to. If you don't want to explain yourself and you, I feel like you need to be open to all the possibilities that exist. Right. You can't say, I'm not going to tell you what this, I don't have to explain myself and then be frustrated when people don't get it. Right. You can't really have both. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Totally. And then be upset when like people don't, you don't, you know what I mean? You don't get it. Yeah. Right. So this is kind of when we talked about Andy Warhol. And so Andy Warhol really becomes this really influential mentor for him. And so they, he definitely sought him out. They befriended him. They collaborated. In the mid-80s, they had the show of their work that featured a series of corporate logos, cartoon characters, and that's in the book. Those are some of my favorites. I'm not a huge Andy Warhol fan, and I'm not a huge Basquiat fan, but I liked what they did together because I just you could really get a sense of each, per, each artist's style and them working together. And I really, I really like that. So Andy would do like a silkscreen print on the canvas and Jean-Michel would paint something and they would kind of go back and forth. They have actually footage of them doing it and it's really, really cool. But the problem is they did this show and they did these paintings and it got horrible reviews, like really, really bad mm -hmm. reviews. People just said it was awful. And they were both really disappointed and they described Basquiat as Andy's lapdog. I guess the problem was that people were sort of like, you know, okay, so he's Andy's lapdog. He's, Andy's using him. And Basquiat's like, wait, is he? Because he's kind of a rising star. Is, is Andy, he didn't trust his own instinct. He didn't trust his own judgment. It just really kind of soured him. And he didn't really know if he could trust Warhol. But like before that, they were very, very good friends. And Warhol really looked out for for Jean-Michel. He looked out for him. And friends like talk about like they'd overhear a, a conversation and Warhol would be like going over a checklist with him. Did you call your mother today? What did, did you eat today? What like going over like checking on him, making sure he was okay, like very, very fatherly, very loving. And it, you know, wasn't this like, oh, I'm just going to use you and do the show and be done. And so it really confused and conflicted Basquiat. He really was like, am I being taken advantage of? 
Should I have trusted Andy? I don't know. So he cut, he cut him off and he stopped talking to Andy Warhol. Was he still doing a lot of drugs at this time? Oh yeah. Was he basically doing a lot of drugs the whole time? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So he leaves town. He's I kind can of see that the paranoia. I could see that adding to like his confusion. Yeah. And again, he's really young. You know, he's still in his twenties, right? Mid twenties at this point. So at, soon after that, uh, Andy Warhol died unexpectedly. And so Basquiat never had a chance to make up with him and talk through it. And that really was brutal for him because he just felt like he left this sour relationship and didn't get a chance to kind of repair that. And right after that, his drug use, they said, significantly increased. He just kind of, you know, he had someone who really did care about him and loved him and was a mentor and wasn't using him. And then he questioned it and then he realized too late that he should have he should have seen the truth. There's another story too about another couple who started to collect his work and they're, they have, you know, a documentary about them and they're like this old couple, not like this wealthy family, Lenore and Herb Shore. And so they were probably the, the early devoted collectors of his work. They just loved his work. And so they really kind of provided the safe harbor for him. Again, his mother's in a mental institution most of the time. His dad's kind of absent. They have, have tell stories of him like seeing his dad at a restaurant and like going over to him and talking to him and dad like, not wanting him to come by him and like shooing him away. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Even after he has achieved all of this yes. like success. Yeah. Wow. What yeah. was that all about? Yeah. Messed up for sure. So this couple, they went to see No Say and they asked her, you know, if they had any art because they were interested, but they were not wealthy, crazy wealthy people. They just wanted to kind of make an investment and they were interested in art. And so she shows them some canvases of Basquiat's and they weren't really they didn't really like them too much and then she showed them she goes well I've been saving these and they're like oh yeah sure you have so she brings out these other and they were this one called Poison Oasis and that just won them over they loved it and they just said that's that's beautiful and then they met Basquiat and they said he won us over and he basically stayed in their lives until he died but it's this suburban couple they were literally like they would drive in on Saturday mornings They'd pick him up at his place. They'd take him grocery shopping or to get musical equipment or whatever. And then he'd drive around and he was like, you know, I should get you a driver's cab, Herb, because you're like my chauffeur. He couldn't get a cab in New York City. Like he couldn't have run these errands because they wouldn't pick up black men at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, you start to think about the the racial implications of, of his position and what he was doing. At a certain point, he asked Herb, he's like, would you be my art dealer? And Herb's like, absolutely not. Um, but what he did was like, they would, they definitely built up a collection of his work that they, they were, that they loved chosen, like specifically, you know, pieces that they really liked. They, again, they didn't have a ton of money, but like years later, they talked about this and they just definitely felt like parents to him. Like they had a mutual respect and affection. They, they, he loved them. They loved him. And they were just, they didn't really ask anything of him. You know, they were, they, they were proud of him. They loved what he was doing. And so they also tell stories, which this is really interesting, is they would go to major museums and institutions, including the Whitney and Museum of Modern Art, and to offer his paintings. And they turned him down. They didn't want, before he died, they didn't want any of his work. And they said that a wariness toward the artist shaped by racial politics played a major part in how he was treated and how his works were received during his lifetime. They don't want anything to do with his work before he died. And they didn't mince words about the kinds of things that they used to hear in camp. They would champion him, right? So they would tell people about him, like, you got to buy, like, this guy's amazing. And people's brilliant. And they're like, oh, you mean he's street smart? 
And he's like, no, he's he's brilliant. They Again, they felt that because he was black, people w- couldn't imagine that he would be brilliant, that he had to be, because he was, a, you know, the street artist. And then he was, you know, they're like, oh, he's got to be street smart. And so they said that they'd been offered $2 million for one of his drawings a lot a few years ago. And they said right now, if they needed to, they could never, they could not have afforded any of the paintings that they own. And they said in the old days, it was not about speculation. It was about love for his work. And that really shows. So it was kind of nice to see that there were these people in his life who really cared about him and who were looking out for him when his real, you know, his family didn't seem to be as as involved. And then during this time, there's this famous New York Times article that this photo, again, you see this photo, it's him dressed in the Armani suit, barefoot, it's paint splattered, right? He's dreadlocked. And that is what people think of when they think of Basquiat. It's this painter and this Armani, like, like, what are you doing painting in an Armani suit, right? But it's, that's the image that I think of when I think of Basquiat. Yeah. Uh, You got all that money and you don't know what to do with it. You can buy expensive suits and just ruin them. Right. Yeah. I'm going to paint in this. Yeah, who cares? But now they're saying the benefit of hindsight and some good reporting, they know that he was being crushed under money and publicity. And at the same time, he was being asked to reinvest painting with its foregone aura of authenticity, even saintliness, because he was black. No human being could ever survive that, and he didn't. And the irony of his work's ever-rising price is that far from clarifying his stature, they keep alive the question he repeatedly asked himself, and I am artist? Am I an art star or just another celebrity? What's the draw here? Do people just want to be around me or do they want my work? And what am I? And again, we think of how young he is at this point, trying to figure this out, trying to make a way and be comfortable in this and be comfortable in this role. And he 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 wasn't. He was, you could see him squirm underneath it. And so add to this the idea that we talk about race before, but he'd go to an art opening of his work. He'd be the feature. He'd have people falling over themselves to get to him, wanting to be with him, wanting to sleep with him, wanting to stand next to him, wanting their picture with him. Just people just all night, all night, all night. But he couldn't get a cab home because he was black. And so how do you reconcile that? What does that do to your mind? What does that do to your psyche? There's like a disconnect, right? Between this world and the, but it's the same people. So what's happening? Yeah, I can't imagine, you know? Yeah. Again, he's he's young, but it's, at this time, there's also another interview. And I mentioned there's a lot of interviews. And you could just see this sort of resentment. And so one of the interviews says to him that you're sort of a primal, this is sort of primal expressionism. And you mentioned the word primal before. And he kind of looks down and then he goes, primal? Like an ape? And the interviewer is like, uh, Ooh. well, um, I, I, I don't know, may, maybe. And, and Jean-Michel goes, well, you said it. And it was like the way the guy was saying it, it was like, this guy was so offensive. He didn't know what to make of this per- this creature. And Jean-Michel knows that. And so he's sitting there, whereas maybe a, a different personality would have been like screaming at this guy, telling him to go F off. But he was just kind of like this quiet, simmering resentment. And you could just feel it that I'm not going to let you off the hook. And you don't you don't know what you're saying. You don't know what you're asking me. You don't understand what I'm doing. And it was just so unbelievably offensive. Like they, they didn't know what to do with him or they didn't know how to categorize him or this person didn't. And it was real clear. Yeah. So another thing, too, that I think is interesting is a lot of people will talk about his work that he's like this virtuoso. Again, I, I don't necessarily feel that. I mean, he really wasn't even a good draftsman. And he admitted that. To say that he was otherwise, I think, is is unfair to him and, and to, you know, other artists. But these images were unschooled because he was unschooled. Unlike Picasso's, his figures were crude because he could barely draw, right? Whereas Picasso, we know, could draw a person and make and be have it be realistic. And Basquiat was not able to do that. Um, but again, mm-hmm. does 
Does that matter? I have to be honest. It does matter to me. Does it matter to you? Um, it, it matters to me. It matters to me. Like he's an idea guy. I feel like one part of being a good artist is having ideas. Because as a teacher, um, you know, working with students all the time, and some of them are extremely skilled. They can, you know, create something from real world and make it look exactly as it exists or, you know, follow whatever it is that's laid out in front of them. But they, when you're like, oh, well, it's your choice. You can just do what you want. Some of those kids don't, there's kids that don't know what to do. They're just lost in that. While there's others that are just filled with ideas. And, th and that's something that I see in his work. He's filled with ideas. It's just trying to like wrangle those in. And it, it I mean, I, I, you, I feel like his work shows some of that lack of schooling that if he had had an opportunity to, you know, get some of that background that, I mean, I mean, I think those things do matter. But don't you feel like to, if you can copy what someone else does, you're an artist, but doesn't that sort of, if you can't do anything else beyond that and come up with your own thing, doesn't that mean maybe you're less creative? Yes. Yes and no, because like, this is a, always an interesting concept to me, because I feel like as a visual artist, we don't value anyone as much, especially today, like in modern times, where we have a camera that can, you know, capture what exists in reality. Whereas like, you know, the beginning of art, we were creating it because we didn't have a camera to to capture what exists in reality. But the visual art, we don't value it today unless it is an original idea in something. But let's say a musician, you know what I mean? Like someone reproducing someone else's song or redoing someone else's song. Sometimes we like that. Or someone else totally different wrote the song and you're just the musician that sings it and plays it like you didn't come up with that idea but you're executing it like I, I feel like there's like a disconnect there we still value that and think that that's still good but we don't in the visual art world we don't so I actually sense? have a problem when I find out that people are not writing their own songs so when I found out that all those artists who buy Sia songs and they're not writing their own stuff I don't like that that bothers me. I want it to be yeah. your own stuff. To me, it matters. To mm -hmm. me, it matters if you wrote that and that you, there's there's a there's a depth to that that's important to me. Whereas if you're just, other people are writing and you're just getting up and singing, it's like, well, that, that's, that doesn't mean as much to me as someone who's writing their own stuff. Absolutely. I feel like I have a much higher level of respect for somebody who did do, complete the entire process. Yeah. So when you're looking at him and you're like, okay, you're not, maybe you're not able to perfect a figure or perfect, you know, make it look realistic, but because you couldn't do that, you had to come up with this style. So does that mean less than it's someone like Picasso who could do that, who could make that, but chose not to? Like Basquiat didn't really choose in to my do opinion, that. He, he couldn't really do anything else. Yes. In my opinion, yes. Okay. That Picasso's to me does hold more weight and more value. Uh-huh. Um, it was a conscious, what he was doing was a conscious decision. Yeah. And he was very skilled and trained and he chose to break away from that and show things in a different light mm -hmm. in a different way. Yeah. Where, yeah, Basquiat didn't, he wasn't capable of it. Okay. So this surprises me because I didn't know, I didn't know what your answer was going to be about him. I didn't know how you were going to feel about him. That's interesting. And that I'm glad I chose him because I just, I was sort of like, I don't know what, what your response is going to be to that. You know, so I guess I, 
yeah, maybe I thought, maybe I had an assumption because if I'm surprised, I had an assumption, right? Because I know what you how you like Picasso and his work, but I, I that other le- level of that the training and the being able to do that, yeah. So that's that surprises me because we're kind of on the same track. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are aspects that I like respect and appreciate, but there's definitely parts that I'm like, oh man. Like what? What parts? I mean, just, I, there are sometimes, I, I mean, being, honest, they get, some of the drawing is just so, so childish and I'm like, come on. <laughs> I feel the same way. And again, but part of me is like that idea that I, I want to understand what's behind it. And so I just, I think too, with him, it's not just the work, it, it's the his story that I found so interesting. So I, I wasn't like, oh, I'm so attracted to his work. It's like, no, there's a really good story here that I want to make sure that I share because I think it just, again, we have these young artists who I get feel like get used up and thrown away and they can't handle it and they're they're gone, you know, before they're 30. So as his popularity soaring, so did his personal problems. And by the mid 80s, his friends were really concerned about his excessive drug use. And he was super paranoid. He would isolate himself from the world for really long stretches. And so desperate to kick a heroin addiction, he left for New York for Hawaii in 1988 and returned a few months later claiming that he was sober. But uh, sadly, he wasn't. Again, we we mentioned like that relationship with his father. His father actually, again, while he was alive, didn't really have much to do with him, didn't really interact with him too much. But after he died, of course, is is all in his business. You'll hear about that. So in August 12th, 1988, New York, Basquiat died of a drug overdose. He was 27 years old. And he left over 600 to 1,000 paintings, 1,500 drawings, as well as sculptures and mixed media works. They have a hard time authenticating all of his stuff because he did so much that he would just kind of give to people that it was hard, it's hard to authenticate it all. And he was very easy to copy. I know you're gonna find that hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> so after he died, his dad took control over his art and his friends actually said that they credited him with as a source of Jean-Michel's addiction. And they said that was... It was his relationship with his father, the addiction, they believe that it causes overdose, that he, that's why he was addicted and that's why he overdosed. But he did have a tight control over his son's copyright after his death and he created this authentication committee. And so what would happen is people would bring a painting to them or whatever and they would pay a hundred dollars and they'd have this committee authenticated or not and he was had very tight control over his work and actually they they credit him with elevating his son's work after his death and making it become as popular as it was and he just passed away recently so he's all the works i think I think a lot of them, a few of them were passed on to his sisters who are still there. There was a movie about Basquiat written by an artist who was kind of a rival of his at the time. So a lot of people who are friends with him were like, that guy was not his friend. You don't really want someone who's sort of your rival writing a movie about you. Yeah, absolutely not. (laughs) It's like Edgar Allan Poe. His biography was written by someone, uh, another author who hated him. And so all those horrible stories about Edgar Allan Poe were not true. They were like that he died of like, you know, they did crazy stories about what he died from that he was drunk that he it's like that was not true but it was the guy who was like his biggest enemy wrote his biography and that was what people used for years not that schnabel and 
Basquiat were necessarily enemies, but they were competitors. And so some people were like, I don't know if this is a great representation, but I think it's really cool. Jeffrey Wright played Basquiat. David Bowie played Andy Warhol. So it's kind of a cool kind of a cool movie that was 96 that that came out the radiant child documentary i recommend that as well because i really thought that was a cool way to see him but when you look at his pieces today you can see that these were canvases made by a young man barely out of his teens who never lost a teenager's contempt for respectability even when he was rushed to market before he could fully develop his mastery what little we know for sure about basquiat can be said simply an extraordinary painter sensitivity expressed itself in the person of a young black male, the locus of terror and misgiving in a racist society, and that rich people love to collect his work. Some have had a hard time making these two go together easily, but so did he. Again, we talk about him being rushed to market. Again, get these pieces out, get this out. So maybe he didn't have time to develop the work he would have had he been stuck in a little tiny one-bedroom apartment making stuff. Did that have an effect on what he ended up creating because he had to rush and get things out? I I would absolutely think so. At the same time, it doesn't, I I mean, as I like page through this book and look at it from, you know, the beginning to the end, I'm, and it's a number of years, I still don't see like an evolution in his, in his work in terms of like, I don't see him really working to develop his craft and, you know, what those figures looked like when he was 17. Now you look at him when he's like 25 and he's really, based on, you know, the amount of pieces that he has made, you would think that there would have been some changes that were, you know, really made there. And you'd see a lot of growth, the media in very similar, in a very similar manner from when he's young to, I mean, when he's still young, but older. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I I felt the same thing. It's very, it's very kind of one note, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I, I agree. I think that that's, that's definitely, that's definitely true. But Lauren, if you want to see a Basquiat in person, I have really good news for you. A source told the Chicago Tribune was completed before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Chicago billionaire Kenneth Griffin bought Boy and Dog and Johnny Pump, painting from Peter Brandt, a billionaire and leading Basquiat collector, for more than $100 million. Exuberant elemental and about 14 feet wide by 8 feet high, the painting is now hanging on a wall in the modern wing of the Art Institute. Ooh, so we can go and see it. We can go see it. Right? We got to go. We need a field trip. Absolutely. So the painting depicts, it's almost a skeletal black male figure with a companion dog painted in similar style in the spray of an open fire hydrant or Johnny Pump is what they would call it in New York street slang. He wants to paint these figures, both dog and boy from the inside out. Reds and yellows and oranges suggest a blazing hot summer landscape. The painting is the only Basquiat filling a significant gap in its modern contemporary art collection. So now there's one there. And that's just recent. Yeah, so that's that's, awesome. that's Basquiat. Oh. Are you mad? Huh? <laughs> Are you mad that that was your topic? No, no, I love it. I, I, I mean, I didn't know anything really about this man. I mean, good. Um, just a, a vague familiarity with his work, but I did not know any of his background story yeah. at all. Yeah, so. not everyone's gonna get his art. Or be able to talk about it the way you could because you're an artist, because you teach, you you do this, you you study this. You're able to kind of look at this in a way that, you know, have just a different perspective. So I that's I had to kind of save this for the right person. So I'm so glad that I was able Ooh. to do that with you. Oh, here's the Johnny Pump. I can show you that. I don't know if it's in the book or not, but I just kind of show you. Okay, so that's the one that's in the Art Institute? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's the one that we'll be able to see. And then I found one more like that he did that that I think you'll 
no more drama. <laughs> oh, this is on a shower it. curtain. That was like one of his drawing, like one of his drawings. I guess that people like, you know, sell it's on products and stuff. I'm like, no more drama. What? Basquiat? We need drama. So we need so dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that was there was another sign like I have to do this topic that I got to pick this. Oh, is there anything else that like you're that's bubbling in your head that I don't I feel like I've I've talked too much and I'm not letting you share your expertise no I feel well I feel like I kind of did like trash him a little bit so I do feel bad about that um I do think that there are things in his work that I do respect and I do think that are that they're done well or they're like intriguing at at the very least because I do think that a lot of his pieces I do he gets me to stop you know what I mean? As I'm turning the pages, and I mean that that would be the first thing you need to do. And I and I will stop and um and spend some time with something and try to figure it out. But then there are some things that I will just pass right by. Mm-hmm. So I think there are some good qualities here. So I don't mean to say that all of it is, mm-hmm. you know, not good. Yeah. And like the the portrait that he did with him and Andy Warhol, I love that. And like you're saying, like that, that because you're like I don't know. I felt, I just felt like that wasn't so contrived, not so contrived, right? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Where it's like, oh. hey, he just got inspired at that moment. And he was like, oh my God, I, I got to paint Andy. I got to do it right now. And he does it and it comes back instead of like, how am I going to like piss off my audience? Or how am I going to put a symbol on here that no one's going to get? Or how am I going to, you know, I, I get a, a little bit of that from people where it's like, there's going to be things in here that, that aren't going to make sense or you're not going to get. And there's a there's a reason for that to complicate things. And, and sometimes that that bugs me. I don't know. I, that was sort of what I liked about that, the Warhol that he painted, that quick one. And then the ones he did with Andy, I just, I felt that there was a lightness to that. I felt like there was a, it just seemed less stressed out than his other work. And it just seemed a little more fun and interactive instead of just trying to get a message, which sometimes, you know, th- there's an importance to art, right? There's, you know, art is a reflection of society and, and it should be a response to that and has a responsibility as well to comment on what's happening historically. And so I think that the messages that he had are important. And the fact that he was trying to bring attention to black athletes and black musicians and how they're treated by society and that they're marginalized. I think that's really important. And I think you need to do that. But I think it, it, like you said, it can be tiresome, right? It could be like, I, I, I don't want this hanging in my house because this is this is tiring and this is exhausting. I'm trying to figure this out. But, it, you know, it can be powerful. There's art that that's powerful and um, important and, and has a purpose. And I think a lot of what he did definitely is that's true for. Yeah, I feel like if you're going to pick a piece to hang in your house, you definitely want it to be something that um, isn't boring, though, <laughs> that you're just going to pass by and not pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And then continue to come back to it and think about what's there or make some new discoveries or come to some new conclusions about it. And what when you're putting like when you're choosing art to hang up in your house, what's your aesthetic? Like, what are you trying to achieve by the art that you hang in your house? Well, I'm burdened by cost. <laughs> so that's, that's probably one of my first uh-huh. issues. It depends on, I, I feel like it depends on the time, like how I'm feeling in the moment. But for you to put a nail in the wall and hang something up. It's, I, it, it's, I, I don't like print. We've talked about this. Mm-hmm. I don't like prints. Right. I don't hang prints anywhere. Um, I like it to be original artwork. There's a lot of my own things hanging in my house purely because I made them and they're free. <laughs> so I don't have to pay for them. <laughs> 
but yeah, I, I mean, I think how you're feeling at the time definitely influences some of the things that you buy and you choose to hang. I feel like I, it might, like I'm into a lot of graphic things and had things having a graphic quality to them, like computer screens that have those graphic qualities. And, you know, a lot of those kind of digital images have those types of, um, that feeling to them. So I don't know if I'm influenced by that. And that's, I don't, the vibe I'm into right mm-hmm. now, Okay, but I do think that it changes though, mm-hmm. you know, with, with different things that are happening in your life and then different things that you see and you're drawn to, and then you're trying to create a certain vibe as well. So, right. Right. Yeah. If you come to my house, you'll see I've noticed and I basically have stolen all my sister's artwork. So anything she doesn't want, I take. She's got really good taste. So she'll be getting rid of something. I'm like, okay, that's on my wall now. But a lot of it are sort of landscapes, very kind of sort of watercolory, abstract sort of landscape, whereas I get a very peaceful feeling from them. So I get a sense like I, it just relaxes me. I have a big one in my dining room that's like a cafe, but it's like I, I look at that and I think I'm going to go walk, I'm going to sit in that cafe, have a cup of tea, and I'm going to walk outside and start my day. So it's like I can imagine, but it's like a peaceful place. So for me, it's important that the art is relaxing and peaceful when I when I surround myself with it. I have a lot of family photos and those kinds of things too, but the art, and like I said, I do, I think most of these are, are real things that people have painted. Um, and I really, that that's important to me too. I don't want a print of something that I'm going to put up no Thomas Kincaid's on my walls (laughs) not yet but who knows you know that that could change the older I get that little cottage might be very appealing I might want to have that little cottage I could walk into with the lights on (laughs) well Lauren thank you for being here thank you for doing this with me you've been such a great support for me for this these many months and you're so good about listening to my podcast and telling me great things so I appreciate that as well and thank you for doing this thank you so much for having me I love I I love this I love your podcast I think you do an amazing job thank you you've been fabulous and I know next time we see each other we're gonna sit and talk about this for another two hours so (laughs) we absolutely will All right, great. Okay, so thanks, everyone. Thanks for being here. Remember to check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and to subscribe, rate, and review. And remember, it's okay to be so dramatic.